Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we cover everything we can about U.S. soccer, Americans in Europe, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. From time to time, I will be joined by guest hosts, as well as conduct interviews with some of the biggest influencers in American soccer. In addition, each episode, we will be featuring beer from some of the best breweries across the land while we discuss these topics. So while you listen in, grab a pint yourself while we break down the American soccer scene, and as always, support your local brewers. Well, if you have been paying attention, I've missed a couple of weeks with episodes due to some unexpected travel, some expected travel, and just Life getting in the way of being able to create. So apologies on the delay with things, but the good news is there has been a lot of things that have happened in the U.S. soccer world, including significant changes in leadership within the men's program, some movement with players in the U.S. men's national team, a U.S. coach getting fired in the Premier League, and, oh yeah, our first two friendlies of the 2023 season. With so much to talk about and with so much catching up to do, I decided to break this episode into two parts in what I titled Trust the process. So today in part one, we're going to chat mostly about all of the changes in leadership, changes in coaching, changes with players, basically the happenings over the past few weeks with U.S. soccer specifically. And then in part two, we will go over the results of the friendlies, who performed well, who missed their opportunity to impress, and what is next for this program. I've also had Quite a few questions come in, so I'll make sure to address those throughout the two parts as well. And as as I always do, I'll wrap up each episode with my final thoughts of the week, or in this case, the previous weeks. So to kick off today's episode, I have one of the best breweries in the country and one I've been fortunate enough to visit and tour personally. Out of Austin, Texas today, we have Jester King Brewery. And for anyone who has been able to try any of their brews, you know how much time and effort they put into everything they do and everything they represent. Today, I have a bottle of their Citrus Fruit Direct, which is a farmhouse IPA that has been re-fermented with oranges and mandarins, and it sits at 6.7% in alcohol. This has just enough funk and citrus zest to it, and farmhouse styles can always be hit or miss for me, but... The ones that I've had from Jester King have never disappointed. In fact, when I was able to visit last year, we got to try multiple on site and they were some of the best I've ever had. And if you have been as lucky as I have to visit, you would know it is like a playground of sorts with their main brew house, their beer garden, their barn with their pasture bar, playground in the pasture for kids, a hop yard, a vineyard area, a goat barn in the back a cool grotto and canopy area on site, as well as a farm trail and a nature trail for individuals that enjoy a nice walk around while they have a beer. They also have insane food options, and I think even a pizza truck uh, on the weekend. So you can spend the entire day there and always have something to do. Jester King is truly an authentic farmhouse brewery committed to mixed culture and spontaneous fermentation. Everything they have done with their beer incorporates their natural surroundings and the local agriculture, which makes their beer tied to a time, place, and to the people. Their backstory is truly amazing, and I encourage anyone who is listening to go check it out on their website, but I'll share a snippet first. Co-founder Jeffrey Stuffings was a local home brewer who started working on the foundation of Jester King back in 2007 while he worked at Austin Homebrew Supply and developed his recipes and business plan there. 
By 2009, he asked his brother Michael to move to Austin to join him in what would become Jester King, and they started looking for the perfect location. They found an old machine shop in southern Texas, they took it apart, and they moved it to Austin, where they spent the entire summer of 2009 rebuilding it into a brewery. And by September of 2010, they were brewing their first batch of beer. Fast forward to 2015, and the brothers made a major move by purchasing 58 acres around the brewery. This solidified the incredible land conservation and enabled them to do all of the great things that have a farm uh, that having a farm allows you to do. By 2018, they were able to purchase another 107 acres of land, bringing their total to 165. And as I described a moment ago with everything they have around their brewery, it is just an unbelievable sight to be seen. So please go check out Jester King, grab any beer of theirs that you can find and enjoy it. It's one of the best in the land and I am very grateful for their support and appreciate them for letting me feature them here on Soccer Pine. So thank you, Jester King and cheers to you. Well, there have been some significant changes in leadership within U.S. soccer recently. For all of the drama that came after the World Cup with the whole Burhalter and Reina fiasco, it's been what seems a never-ending quest to figure out how to take this U.S. men's program to the next level. Brian McBride recently resigned from his role as the general manager of the U.S. men's national team in order to pursue other opportunities. I had previously mentioned that McBride had never held a role even remotely close to the level that is needed for a national team, and was shocked that he was actually given the role in the first place. With everything that was going on with Burhalter, it almost got swept under the rug. But as people started digging deeper into the potential corruption that exists at U.S. soccer headquarters, McBride suddenly stepped down and removed himself. Then the next domino fell down, as Ernie Stewart resigned as the sporting director of the U.S. men's national team in order to return to the Netherlands, where he had spent many years working in a similar capacity with the clubs there. While most mainstream U.S. soccer media would want you to think these moves were made entirely on their own, it's not a coincidence that all of this happened once a microscope was put under the hierarchy that exists in U.S. soccer. All of this happening while U.S. soccer is still yet to name a new coach to lead the team. All of this happening while U.S. soccer continues to investigate the entire Greg Berhalter situation. He remains out of contract, but according to U.S. Soccer, is still being considered a candidate for our head coaching role. Not that this necessarily is relevant to the U.S. Soccer situation, but it kind of is directly associated with all of it. But Claudio Reyno, Gio Reyno's father, resigned as sporting director of Austin FC in Major League Soccer due to the entire situation and to eliminate being a distraction moving forward to the club or with the club. Now, The last domino standing in all of this craziness is clearly the lack of communication out of U.S. soccer in regards to its head coaching search. Cindy uh, Cindy Parlo-Cohn, who is the president of U.S. soccer, has stated that there will be an extensive search and effort to find a leader for the 2026 cycle, but they feel comfortable with who they currently have within the program to help lead this team over the next few months while the search goes on for a full-time leader. So, Anthony Hudson just served as interim coach for the two friendlies against Serbia and Colombia. It sounds like he will remain in charge of their squad for the Nations League matches in March and potentially for their matches in June. But Cindy Cohn is still treating Greg Berhalter as one of the top candidates that they have in their search. This would be one of the worst decisions in U.S. soccer history to bring him back as the leader of this group after everything that has been made public. 
it is still undeniable that none of the regulars in European clubs have come out and supported Greg. The lack of public support from his players who train and play club ball in Europe is more telling than anything else. Except, mainstream media continues to ignore that story. They continue to throw articles out there from MLS players like Jordan Morris, DeAndre Yedlin, Walker Zimmerman, who have all publicly supported Greg. They're all MLS players. So where do we go from here? What does all of this mean to us? How can we move forward and take this country to levels it has never seen in international soccer? We all have an answer of what we want, of where we want to go, ideas of how we can move forward, but what is realistic right now? Jesse Marsh, who has been leading Leeds United in the English Premier League with American players Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson and the newly signed or loaned player in Weston McKinney, which we'll chat about more later, was fired after Leeds United lost another match, putting them closer to the relegation zone that fans and ownership wanted to wanted to, to get away from. So Marsh is out. The same Marsh that all U.S. men's national team fans were calling for to take over the head coaching role. The same Marsh who said his dream is to one day coach the national team, but that his priority was club soccer with Leeds right now. Is he a realistic option? We will see. Seems like the same fans who were supporting his name months ago are now saying, well, he can't hack it at the international level. I've gotten more questions about him becoming our head coach than anything else over this past week. So let's answer that one right now. Do I believe Jesse Marsh is the right person for the job? I think he is the easiest name to put out there, especially now. I think his familiarity with top leagues and international soccer is something that we have lacked in the past few years. If we are looking for an American coach to coach our program, then he absolutely should be the choice. It's a no-brainer for me. But do we want an American coach to coach the squad? Do we need a different style or perspective to come in and take us to that next level? I think we do. That's not to discredit anything Marsh or any other American coach could bring, but I believe a different perspective is exactly what we need with the group of players that we have. Again, our largest contingent of players are playing in European leagues and are used to various styles and tactics. And if we could get someone that can elevate us to a different level and put our best players in positions where they can actually thrive, we have to do it. It doesn't mean we should swing for the fences with the most popular names. I've seen Jose Mourinho's name out there. We heard that Zidane said no to the conversation about the role. People keep calling for Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp if they were ready to leap into international soccer. Also, neither of those names are remotely realistic right now. I think there are a lot of names on the international front that could impact our program. Marcelo Belsa was the former Leeds uh, manager that Jesse Marsh replaced. He's being considered a top candidate for the U.S. and was for Mexico until they just hired a coach yesterday. But current El Salvador coach and former U.S. men's national team player Hugo Perez has also had his name floated out there. Other South American managers have also been in the news, but there has still been little to no communication out of U.S. soccer to confirm or deny any of these so-called reports. Listen, people are going to be quick to judge anyone who is hired at this level. People, including myself, will inevitably complain about the decisions that are made. We will celebrate wins that are had. We will be skeptical of every single player that is brought into a camp, etc., etc., etc. But this is an incredibly 
important decision, and U.S. soccer needs to be careful with it. So I can respect their decision to take their time with their selection. 2023 is a year in which should be more about bringing in other players for looks and isn't a year in which results truly will impact much of anything. I know we have Nations League matches in the Gold Cup this summer, but our focus is more at our Youth World Cups and the preparations for the Olympics with our younger squad players for 2024. Selecting a new head coach by the end of the summer will allow us to vet out many candidates, some of which will be out of contract with their clubs after their seasons finish up in May. So it is a smart decision for once by U.S. soccer. But again, it has to be the right choice. With all of the changes already being made in leadership decisions, we should expect a fresh face to lead this program. It's definitely going to be exciting to see who is chosen and how the players adapt. For everyone who is getting anxious and scrutinizing every single move being made, every single change being made, I encourage you to just trust the process. Well, as I spoke about all the changes within U.S. soccer, I also mentioned that some players have been on the move as well. In fact, I teed it up earlier by mentioning Weston McKinney heading to Leeds United on loan through the end of the season. And on Wednesday, we got to see him and Tyler Adams man their midfield against Manchester United, along with Brendan Aronson coming off the bench late in their 2-2 draw. Now, seeing Marsh get fired as soon as McKinney joins is a bit bittersweet, but nonetheless, club soccer is a cutthroat business, and you have to get results. But with McKinney moving to the Premier League, I think it's a great step for him professionally. He has played in the Bundesliga. He has played in Serie A with Juventus. He has played in Champions League matches. And obviously, he performed very well at the World Cup. While his move is a short-term loan deal, with an option to sign permanently, I should add, it is somewhat of an opportunity for him to showcase his skill set in the toughest league in the world. He can really set himself up for more things, or even more things in the summer. So I was asked what I thought about McKinney to Leeds transfer, and my response is, I really like it a lot. I love the fact that he gets to play in the Premier League. I love that he gets to continue working with Adams and Aronson. I love that he can immediately step in and play with a team that has so much to play for in order to stay up in the Premier League. McKinney is such an underrated, underappreciated player at the club level. He is relentless in his pursuit of success, and this is going to take his game to a higher level. A player who made the recent U.S. roster for their friendlies was Matthew Hoppy, And as soon, as soon, or I should say, Soon after Camp Cupcake ended, Hoppy worked out a loan move from Middlesbrough to Scottish Premiership Club Hibernian. It's been a bit of a roller coaster for Hoppy over the last two years. He scored a hat trick for Shockey in the Bundesliga before they were relegated in 2021. That's when his hype really started. But they got relegated. He wanted higher things or bigger things. So he moved to Mallorca in La Liga in Spain, where he saw limited minutes and playing time. Then he moved to Middlesbrough in the English Championship, where he ended up only playing with their under-21 team. So this move makes sense for him to get playing time and hopefully build some confidence for the future. He is still just 21 years old. He's still developing. We talk all the time about how players need to make sure if they make a move abroad, it is good for their development and not just go to a big league where they, where they're stunt, uh, where they stunt their growth. European soccer is a grind. Don't get me wrong, Major League Soccer is a grind too, but someone like Hoppy really could have excelled with a year or two in MLS. And I was hoping he was going to make a move to the States for this year, but Scotland isn't the worst place for him to try to restart his club career. We have seen it do great things for players like Cameron Carter-Vickers and Malik Tillman, 
recently. So we can only hope the same success happens for Hoppy. Now, there have been several other player developments recently too. Not just loan moves, but goals getting scored. And the biggest goal scored recently, in my opinion, is the first Bundesliga goal by Kevin Paredes for Wolfsburg, scoring a stoppage con- stoppage time consolation goal in their 2-1 loss to Werder Bremen. Paredes continues to get playing time and showing that he is a name to watch with the national team moving forward, and he's still just 19 years old. It is incredibly impressive how quickly he has adapted to German soccer and the impact he is having there. Two weeks ago, Jordi Mihalovic scored his first league goal in the Netherlands since his move away from MLS. He has quickly made an impression and immediately has slotted into their starting 11 and will be another name to watch in the coming months for this U.S. national team. Jordan Pifak came off the bench for Union Berlin in the Bundesliga to score the game-winning goal, which took Union Berlin to the top of the Bundesliga table. It's Pifak's first goal in four months, which brings his total to four goals and three assists in his debut Bundesliga appearance. And lastly, for goals scored, Malik Tillman scored his seventh goal of the season for Rangers in Scotland. Austin Trusty, our promising center back playing for Birmingham City in the English Championship, also scored a stoppage time header on the weekend to help Birmingham snap a winless streak. Gio Reyna has been lights out for Dortmund in his last three matches, scoring in all three games to further cement his status as one of the brightest and most talented players in the U.S. soccer setup. Again, we can't bring Greg Berhalter back. I'm just saying. And finally, for player movements and developments today, I was asked for a name that will make our roster in March that isn't a well-known name, but maybe should be. So there are a few names that I'm excited about. The potential of even more names being called in is really something we haven't seen in previous cycles, especially when we have so much youth and talent in the squad itself. But for me, Taylor Booth, who is currently playing for FC Utrecht in the Netherlands, has been one of the most impressive players in the Dutch league this season. He has played for in the Bayern Munich youth systems and is showing his ability to run a midfield in an extremely attack-minded way. I think we could slot him into a 10-roll or even as a winger in a 7-roll. He deserves a call-up and could make an immediate impact in our squad. So Taylor Booth, that's my name for everyone to look out for in the near future. All right. Well, on to the final thoughts for today, for this week, for weeks past. There's been a lot of happenings, obviously, which we discussed. But my first thought today is one that I just can't wrap my head around. This week, U.S. Women's National Team star Alex Morgan spoke out against FIFA for possibly bringing in or bringing on Visit Saudi, which is the official tourism authority for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as a sponsor for the 2023 Women's World Cup. Alex is quoted as saying, I think it's bizarre that FIFA has looked to have a Visit Saudi sponsorship for the Women's World Cup when I myself, Alex Morgan, would not even be supported and accepted in that country, end quote. Reports made their way around the world last week about the possibility of FIFA bringing them on as a sponsor. Neither host countries, New Zealand or Australia, were consulted about this possibility, and they were quoted as being shocked and disappointed to hear about it. Many human rights activists have also decried the possibility of Visit Saudi being brought on board as well, including Nikita White from Amnesty International, who said it would be quite the irony 
for Saudi's tourism body to sponsor the largest celebration of women's sport in the world when you consider that, as a woman in Saudi Arabia, you can't even have a job without the permission of your male guardian. I hate to get political on here, but my thoughts on this are that FIFA have to be out of their absolute minds to even remotely consider this as a sponsor for their Women's World Cup. It would be the most contradicting thing in the entire world to do this, and I can't imagine this fully coming to fruition after all of the outspoken individuals and influencers in the uh, women's game with everything that happened with Russia getting the World Cup in 2018, with Qatar getting in it in 2022, FIFA has to look and be better than this. Next up for my final thoughts for today, there's a dual national that I've spoken about in the past and thought he might be a surprise inclusion to the U.S. National Team World Cup squad. He is the hottest under-21 prospect maybe in the entire world right now, and that is Fullerin Belungen, currently playing in France on loan from English Premier League leaders Arsenal. Balogun is eligible to represent the United States, England, or Nigeria at the senior international level. He has played for England youth national teams, and he also played for the U.S. under-18 national team back in 2018, where he made four appearances and scored twice. Balogun has completely taken the French League by storm this season, where he has netted 14 times in 21 matches. Balogun would eliminate any more debates on who should be the number nine for the U.S. men's national team. He would immediately slide into the role. If you want to have a debate on this, please let me know. But his pace, his strength, his skill, his awareness is better than anyone in our current striker pool. But the question I have been asked numerous times of late is this. Will he decide to play for the United States? Or will we lose out on him? He said in October that he feels English, but that he wanted to keep his options open, but was close to making a decision. Here we are four months later. Will he decide to play for the U.S. in our March matches? Or will he decide to commit to England to help their under-21 team initially fight for the U-21 European Championship this summer? I would love for him to choose the United States, clearly. Do I think he will be, or do I think he will is the question, though. And I do not. I know that that isn't what U.S. fans want to hear, but I think he is so talented. He is still growing into his game, and he could eventually be an impact player for England. Yes, Harry Kane is the bona fide starting striker for England. But as Hurt Gomez and Sebastian Salazar debated on ESPN this week, there isn't a true number two option behind Kane right now. He has an opportunity to play for the country that he feels he is most a part of. He was born in the U.S., sure, but he moved to London at the age of two. Until his move to France this past year, England has become home. It has been home. He still is an Arsenal player, and I can only assume he will be part of their squad next year, too. He could be a massive player for the United States, of course, but until he commits to the U.S. men's national team, there really isn't a need to talk about him. We can only hope and continue to build our pipeline of talent, and he would be an enormous piece of the puzzle for the 2026 cycle. Without a head coach name, with leadership changes happening, I'm not sure what Anthony Hudson in the interim can do to influence Balogun to join our program. Keep your fingers crossed on this one, but I wouldn't anticipate seeing him suit up for the U.S. in March or even this summer. On to my final thought of the week. We are 15 days away from the start of a new season in Major League Soccer. Teams have been in full preseason mode since January and are now putting the final touches on their preparations, heading into the first matches of the regular season. I often get asked, who do I think will win this year 
or which club will surprise us the most? And I will answer a lot of those in part two of this episode. But for me, I've reflected a lot about where MLS started to where it is today. They have a multiple billion dollar TV deal with Apple. They have another new expansion club starting this season with St. Louis City, bringing the total number of clubs to 29 with 15 in the East and 14 in the West. Defending champion LAFC has continued to splash with new signings. Seattle just became the first ever MLS club to compete at the Club World Cup last week. The first ever active MLS player just won a World Cup with Argentina. It's just an exciting, exciting time for Major League Soccer, for the clubs, for the players, for the coaches. To see the league grow over the past almost 30 years is just incredible. The last time the U.S. held a World Cup in 1994, there was no existence of Major League Soccer. Now as we approach the World Cup in 2026 to be held once again in the U.S., MLS will be heavily represented and more and more players are making the move in their primes, in their beginnings, and it is just becoming so much more of a well-rounded, respected league internationally. While I am not as religious a follower of MLS matches as I am for Premier League and other leagues, the new TV deal will make it much more accessible to everything and will only continue to move MLS further along. It should be a fun 2023 season, and I'm looking forward to seeing it kick off in two weeks. All right, well, that's it for today in our part one episode covering recent weeks in U.S. soccer. Thanks again for listening. Please continue to share Soccer Pints with others and follow Soccer Pints on Instagram and Twitter. Special thanks again to Jester King for the support and for letting me feature you this week. Part two will be releasing very soon and we'll recap the friendly performances against Serbia and Colombia and we'll touch on what's next for this program come March. Until next time, cheers, my friends.